reading comes from John 13, verses 18 to 30. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. This is the word of God. Good Good evening. Good morning again. (laughs) Might be evening when we finish. Um, Let's pray that that's not the case and other things. Heavenly Father, we come before your word now and we would pray in the time uh, that we have that you would be the God who speaks. Uh, Thank you, as we've had it read, that we listen to a text that you have preserved that is useful. It's going to help us in our understanding of who you are and what you're like and how we might respond to you. And so I pray, Lord, that I might speak faithfully, that we might hear well and that your spirit might be at work, taking your word and transforming us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Easter has come and gone, hasn't it? Um, And immediately after Easter, what are you meant to do? Um, Anyone have a ritual that they do after Easter? Easter? Cheap Easter eggs. Eat hot cross buns, that kind of stuff. It's a public holiday, isn't it? The Monday's straight after. Even if, for most people, even if uh, you don't get time off or it's not in school holidays and those things, you've at least got the public holidays, the Friday, the Monday. And so for a lot of people, maybe not for, uh, we don't perhaps see it in the same kind of way, it's kind of great time to kick back and relax and just take it easy. It's time to rest. So after Easter, the work you do is no work. Um, In fact, for me, it was actually time for annual leave. I actually took time off before Easter, during Easter, and only just came back on Friday. You know, the whole thing's been a great holiday Uh, for me. uh, Easter, what do you do after Easter? Rest. 
That might be what's in our calendars, um, but it's certainly not what Jesus saw on the schedule for his disciples after the first Easter. And I want to suggest that after you think about the Easter event, it shouldn't be on the calendar for any of us to think that there's nothing to be done. There's work to be engaged in. There's a, a mission to, uh, to partake of. And if that's true for Jesus' disciples, if there's work to be done, they need to be orientated to it. They need to get ready to get the kind of information that's required to be able to do the work. And I want to suggest that this section of Scripture that we're looking at uh, in the passages from John 13 through to John 17 is actually all about orientating the disciples for the work that is to come after the Easter event. Straight after this passage, Jesus will be betrayed. He'll then be led to a cross and executed. And these disciples won't have him any longer. But he's going to tell them beforehand all the things that they're going to need to know, that they're prepared for it. This section from chapter 13 through to 17 is often called the farewell discourse. And in part, it's the loving parting words as Jesus says goodbye to his friends. But it's more than that. It is his forewarning and his forearming so that as they sit in the upper room this night, he's going to tell them so many things that will be helpful. He's just washed their feet as they've sat there. You reflected on this last week. That the one who is the master and the Lord of all actually humbles himself and gets up from the table and comes and washes and cleanses his disciples' feet and speaks about that cleansing, kind of preempting the great cleansing that he will do by going to the cross. And so he's going to make sure that on that night, before the betrayal and the crucifix- the arrest and the trial and then the crucifixion, that they have everything that they need to be forewarned so that they won't give up. They won't just disperse and run off and also that they would be ready, remember, for the work that's to follow. The- there's work to be done after Easter. And when you think about this section of Scripture, you realise how loving It is that Jesus takes time to do this. Terrible things are about to happen. But the forewarning that Jesus brings is incredibly loving because without it, they'd be all at sea. Of course, um, I'm really sorry, Helen. I meant to put a slide up that said, in a moment, Leon's going to pretend to faint and fall over. Um, And you would have had forewarning about that, and that would have been helpful. um, Because it's incredibly unsettling and distressing. Um, By the way, you guys reacted much better than the nine o'clock. No one moved. Um, (laughs) But to be forewarned, right? Had I put up the slide or told you, in a moment, I'm going to pretend and I'm just going to flop onto the floor, you would have gone, oh, there it goes. He's flopped on the floor. He said he was going to do it and he did it. That's what happened. Now, think about that in the context of what we see in this text. Jesus is going to explain something that is shocking and unsettling. They're going to be grasping for explanations. But because he tells them in advance, they actually know beforehand. It's incredibly loving and helpful. See, what does Jesus know? He knows that he'll be arrested and convicted and beaten and crucified, but he also knows that one who's sitting around that table 
is going to betray him. One that the other 11 disciples have done life with for the last several years, three, four years, three years. And he wants them to know that it is coming. See, look at verse 19. He says, I'm telling you now before it happens. Now, that probably is encapsulating more than just the Judas event, but it certainly is talking about what Judas is about to do. I'm telling you now before it happens that I'm about to be betrayed, crucified, buried, and resurrected too. I'm telling you all this so that, why, when it does happen, that you will believe that I am who I am. He wants to make sure that the events that will come in the very near future will not unsettle their faith. In fact, they will actually allow their belief to be even more sure that he is the I am. We've seen this before in John's Gospel. When John uses that little phrase on Jesus' lips of being the I am, he's saying more than just a self-identification. He's picking up the very covenant name for God, Yahweh, and ascribing it to himself. In other places, he will have said, I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the way. And as he does that, he takes back that name that Moses was given centuries before when Moses asks of God, who should I say is sending me as I stand before Pharaoh saying, let God's people go. And God says to Moses, say to Pharaoh, I am who I am. The I am is sending you. And it became the covenant name for God. And here, Jesus takes that upon himself and he's saying to his disciples this night, I'm telling you this right now tonight so that when it does happen, not if it happens, but when this takes place, you will believe that I am who I am. And it's incredibly loving that he takes this time to forewarn his disciples. Of course, it's curious the next thing that he does. If you notice in verse uh, in verse 20, he, he says this little statement. He says, very truly, I tell you, anyone, sorry, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. And as you read through that, it feels like it doesn't quite fit. He's just told them, I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen. In a moment, he's going to go on and tell you the thing that he wants to tell you. Notice that down in verse 21. He, he, he says, very truly, I tell you. But then he has this bit in the middle there where he kind of feels out of place. He talks about this idea about people accepting anyone that Jesus sends. He's accepting him. And if they accept him, they accept the one who sent him. And what Jesus is doing at this point is saying, you do know that these events will happen. And I've been sent for these events to take place. The betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion the burial and the resurrection. But just as I have been sent, I'm sending you. And that belief that you have in me is actually imperative for the work that you're to do post-Easter. Don't kick back and think it's time to rest. There's a mission, I'm preparing you for it. The mission is that I'm sending you and anyone who accepts you and the message that you bring is accepting me. And if you accept me, you're accepting the one who sent me. It is to accept God. You have a gospel proclamation. I've come into the world to die for the sin of this world. You're about to see these events transpire. Do not lose faith. Because anyone who accepts you, who've accepted me, are accepting the Father. 
He wants them to be well prepared for the events that will take place because he knows what is coming. And one of the first things that will be most unsettling for the first disciples is Judas's behaviour. Because you think about that. One of them will be revealed as a traitor, one has, who has travelled with them and seen all that they have seen. And Jesus wants them to know ahead of time so that they are prepared. Because think about this for a moment. If you know that Jesus is in control, even when there is betrayal from within and evil at work without, not only will you believe that he's still God, you'll get on with the mission that he's called you to. And that's why this is recorded here in this part of Scripture. It's to give you that conviction that you might look at the world around you and see betrayal and evil, but don't think that God is not still on his throne and his mission is still at work and that you're still called to serve and to declare, to be like those first disciples, one, ones whom he has sent bearing that message. Because to not be forewarned about that will be terribly unsettling. Think about it for a moment. One of Jesus' friends, in fact, Judas is described, even at the moment that he gives Jesus the kiss of betrayal, Jesus says, friend, do what you've come to do. One who's travelled alongside him and seen all the things is himself a betrayer. His name forever synonymous with the traitor, Judas Iscariot. It's interesting in this passage that at the end of it we're told that he walks off into the night. He he walks out of the one who has been described in John's Gospel as the light. And, And just think about that for a moment. The idea that light has come in the world... And at the end of this passage, Judas walks out into the... He'll exchange 30 pieces of silver for the life of the one that he has come now to follow and has seen so much happen. He'll exchange the truth of God for a lie and it costs him his soul. He's one of the disciples. How did he get it so wrong? How is that possible? To to, to have seen Jesus, to have been there, to just have your feet washed by him. How did he get it so wrong? In part, that is answered, I think, by going right back to the beginning of John's Gospel, to his prologue. Because John tells us that Jesus is like a light that's come into the world and he's there for all to see. And John's Gospel's written so that people would see the light and that by seeing it would come to believe. But darkness blinds people so they do not understand. They don't recognise the light. John 1, 4 to 5. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And Judas is a case study of exactly that. 
You go through John's gospel and he's the one who sees the light. It's coming to the world, but darkness has not understood it. And he walks out into the night. And when you stop and you think about the light that Judas has seen, he's one of the selected 12. And assuming that he's one of the disciples that are there in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, he saw on that occasion a large amount of water that was used for ceremonial washing turned into top shelf wine. And everyone marveled. But John tells us that the disciples who were there, Judas included, we assume, responded in this way. John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. The light went on and his disciples believed in him. And then they moved from there and they continue in that belief of him because Judas, along with others, sees and hears so much more. People getting healed like the royal official's son, a 38-year-old cripple at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus will walk on water in front of this man. He'll feed 5,000 in front of this man. The temple will be cleansed in his presence. Blind will receive sight. Even Lazarus will be raised from the dead and Judas will see all of these things take place. And as I mentioned before, he'll be there in the room and have his feet washed on the very same night that he walks out on Jesus and when he walks out into the night, away from the light. It's incredible, isn't it, that Judas witnesses all of that And so much more. And built behind that is this longing that would have been there. He's a Jewish man longing for the promised Messiah to come. God's light to the world and to the nations. And yet, when it's there in his presence, clear for all to see, he'll betray him. He'll see the lure of 30 pieces of silver, the love of money, and it will lure him out the door. And you'd say, well, that never would be me. To betray like that. And of course, Judas will betray like none other. You and I will never be in that situation where we could sell Jesus out so that he could be crucified. Judas will be unique in history for his betrayal of Jesus. But perhaps this episode about Judas does have something to teach us about our capacity and our propensity to betray to present in one kind of way but really live another, that we look like we are in the light but we're really in step in the darkness, with a capacity like Judas's to betray our Lord and Saviour. And, of course, Judas is a cautionary tale to all of us about that. But, But I think more than that, that this passage is here in John's Gospel because it's meant to shine a light on Jesus's capacity and his propensity not only to love the betrayer, but also to make sure that in the light of a world that is full of evil and where betrayal within can exist, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be disheartened, to be left in the dark. He wants to forewarn them so that they might understand that he is still God enthroned, even in spite of the circumstances around them and around us and that they would still be engaged on the mission that he is sending them to do. I'm telling you this now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. 
and see what he tells them. Let's look at this passage quickly together. Jesus, he says, starts to speak to his disciples. We're told there that he's troubled in his spirit and he's testifying to them. He says, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Three times already in John's gospel, we've been told that this event will happen. In 6 verse 71, in 12 verse 4, and in 13 verse 2, Judas has already been identified as the one who will betray Jesus. But his disciples have no knowledge of this. They sit there and they look around the room and they have no idea who it could be. The disciples stared at one another at a loss as to which of them he meant. See, I think when we hear of this scene and see Jesus say those, hear of Jesus saying those words, one of you will betray me, we look around the room and the 12 that are there surrounding that last supper and we kind of go, there he is. It's, we know it's Judas. He's the guy, he's got mono brow, it's dark furred, he's dressed in black and he looks really evil. But for the disciples, they see Judas. They see their friend. They see their one that's sitting there, just had his feet washed and part of the crowd and Day after day, they've lived side by side. This is one of their friends. They don't look and point at you. In fact, for them, they're looking around going, him, him, me? In the other Gospels, they're asking, is it me? Am I the one? Could it be, with, could it be me? There's even a self-doubt that's crept into each of the disciples. They don't look and think that it's going to be Judas. In fact, when you look at where he's seated, assuming certain things in this passage, he's seated on the left-hand side of Jesus in a position of honour. Just on the seating arrangement, you kind of want Go to the guy to the next, perhaps. And then when you think that he's the one who's been given the collective purse to manage, he seems to be the most trustworthy one in the group. Oh, we've seen his heart before, where he has a love for money and the episode with the alabaster jar and the waste. And and he's been identified to us as a thief. But to those that are gathered, he's, he's one of the disciples. And so they have no idea. One of them, verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him, next to Jesus. Now that little phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is a phrase that pops up a couple of times in John's Gospel. It's the first time that we've come across it here in this verse. It's identified as being the way that John, who writes this Gospel, is talking about himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a self-effacing way to speak. It's kind of a an astounding humility that says, the one that he loved, I'm that disciple whom he loved. Well, one of them was reclining next to him and Simon Peter then motioned to this disciple because of his proximity to Jesus, ask him which one he means because they've got no idea. It's interesting the amount of detail that John includes here about how they're reclining because normally at a meal you would sit at a table in a similar way that we might, upright. But on special meals, and at this Passover occasion, they're reclining. It's a very different posture. It's particularly different when you consider that the first Passover, you would eat in haste. But here, this is a reclined, leisurely position. And you would recline by laying on your left side, so that you had your right hand free in order to eat. And so when Simon Peter motions to John... It's evident that John is on Jesus' right-hand side and he leans back to Jesus and says to him, which one? Who is it? And it appears that it's all a little kept quiet because others don't seem to hear the answers that are given. In verse 26, Jesus answered, seemingly to John only, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Now that very 
image of him taking a piece of bread and dipping it and giving it to someone was actually an act of honour. Which is incredible, isn't it? Jesus knows what Judas is going to do and yet he still is extending honour to this man. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And some have surmised, because of the simplicity of which this is written, it seems to almost... I've used my wrong hand. It seems that the ease with which he could do that places Judas in close proximity, perhaps at his left-hand side. And as I mentioned a moment ago, that place on the left of Jesus, the highest position of honour in that room. And yet Judas is about to reject all of it, the friendship and the love. And Jesus isn't a victim. All of this is part of a pre-understood plan I'm telling you this before so that when it happens, you'll believe. And so he dips the bread and he gives it to Judas. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. He's a partnership with evil. And what looks like Satan's greatest victory is part of God's sovereign plan. And then Jesus says to him, what you're about to do, do quickly or do more quickly. What you're about to do, Judas, is betray the Son of God. Do it, and do it fast. God set an appointed time where I'll be arrested, tried and flogged and crucified and buried. Do it. Bring it on. It is all part of the plan. The disciples that are gathered around that table, they hear that response. What you're about to do, do it quickly. But none of them, we're told, understood why Jesus said this to him. Not even John, who seems to be on the inside of this information. He doesn't kind of put it together even. But there seems to be other explanations that John includes in the next verse. Because Judas had charge of the money. Some thought he was telling him to go and buy what was needed for the festival. Made good sense. Passover is about to happen. This is the last night that you're going to be able to trade and do stuff. Go and buy the provisions that we need. Or maybe he's got to go up to the temple and give alms to the poor, another practice that would have preceded the Passover. And so it made perfect sense to Judas, go and do it and do it quickly, you're running out of time. None of them connected back to the thing that Jesus had said, that Judas was going to betray. But of course later they will. Because this is all about forewarning them. So that they'll be able to piece it together later on. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And Jesus wants to make sure his disciples knew. Because from that moment on, the next time they will see Judas will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will be praying and Judas will, land, will lead a band of others who are coming to arrest Jesus and he'll step forward and with a kiss identify who Jesus is, that he might be arrested. And one who would look like a brother is a betrayer. There's evil in the camp and no one saw it. And Jesus, if no one saw it, How is it that you're in control? See, imagine if this hadn't been included, if Jesus hadn't told them beforehand... And then you watch Judas do what he does. And you watch Satan do what Satan is doing. And you say, God, are you really in control? It will rip out their faith. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know this beforehand so that your faith is solid. So that you know that I am still enthroned and in control. 
And I wonder if you and I need to have that same kind of reminder today. Jesus warned elsewhere that even within the body, the wheat and the weeds grow up side by side. There'll be people who looked like they were of the faith, but they demonstrated by their coming and going that they weren't. Betrayal from within. People who will break your heart. And God, are you in control? Are you still enthroned? There'll be a world that will look like it's full of evil. People striking out in hatred and in violence. Even to the point of killing God. Are you in control? And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you beforehand so that you are forewarned and so that you will believe that I am who I am. And this week, as much as any week, we do need that reminder, don't we? You see Satan at his worst and it reveals God at his best. That even that plan to strike out against the Son of God brought about the salvation of many. It's what we celebrated last week for Easter. And Jesus is saying, the Easter event is coming and there's a work to be done beyond it. Don't let your faith be ripped out by people like Judas or by evil at work in this world. Don't think that Satan has the upper hand. I'm the one enthroned. I'm the one empowered. Don't give up your belief like Judas. Light has come into the world. Don't walk out into the night, for that is to walk out into darkness. Two thoughts in conclusion. Both of them come from the last part of Bruce Milne's commentary in this section. He reflects on the identity of Judas and perhaps asks who might have said, I wouldn't give up my belief if I'd seen, if I'd seen all that Jesus had done, if I was there on the earth and seen his miracles and heard his teaching and experienced his personal invitation, then of course I would have committed my life to him. But I wasn't there. Judas was. He saw, he heard, he experienced. And he went out to hell. Put your trust in the light while you have it. And this is the invitation, isn't it? We've come to the Easter event, we're post-Easter. We think about who is the one who's enthroned and ruling and reigning in this world. Is there a betrayal in us of that? And the last thought is to come and wonder and give thanks to the sovereignty of Jesus. That even in the midst of betrayal and evil at work in this world, he always remains in control. The encouragement is clear. If Jesus in his purpose used the dark forces of chaos convulsing within the cauldron that was Jerusalem at the Passover feast time, he can still master and harness the darkness which daily threatens our personal lives. He's the same God today. 
Same here in this country or Sri Lanka or anywhere else. He can still master and harness the the darkness which daily threatens our personal lives. In handing all over to him, we need not exclude the darkness in our past or that which threatens us in the present and the future. He is still the Lord of the night who can make darkness the vehicle of his praise. And Judas and his activities and his love for this world and its offerings and a reflection upon Satan and his dealings don't thwart the sovereignty of our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you remind us of what you have forewarned us of, that in your loving kindness you have told us what is to come, that in this world we will have many troubles, yet you have overcome the world. You have told us that betrayal could be within. You have warned us, Lord, that evil is at work in this world, but you are the one who is enthroned. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you that you tell us beforehand that we might believe that you are God, And that we would get on with the work that you have called us to do. That we are sent into this world to be a light. To draw people to the one who is the ultimate light. That they might come out of darkness and find salvation. For there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And so, Heavenly Father, we come giving you thanks. And asking, Lord, that you might again... Draw us into deeper belief. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.